welcome to uh, One Great 150, yeah. a podcast going through 150 years or so of Winnipeg history. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by friend and producer Nick. Hello, rabbit! It's so good. I'm excited for this one. Yeah. This, this is... one feels so much like chiller than the other ones we've done. The The real irony of that is that this is also our World War One episode. For you. The, the... <laughs> <laughs> okay, actually, you're right. Yeah. I just researched a bear. I also I, I also did. Yeah. But with some more facts yeah. in between. <laughs> so if that didn't give it away. Uh, this episode is about Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Who is, I think, finally in public domain or is that? Uh, yes. And I think um, in like, I think in the US, yes. In the UK in 2027. And I think in Canada already as well. Okay. Interestingly, I was talking to someone today about this. And they were telling me that sometime in the 60s, he was pretty sure the city of Winnipeg was trying to convince Disney to share licensing rights oh, to Winnie the Pooh. That was never so going to happen. I know. Also, like, at um, no point in Winnipeg's life could they have afforded the rights no. to Winnie the Pooh. Oh, and we're going to talk about licensing rights later. Yes. <laughs> we're going to not start with that, though. No. Because, of course, Winnie the Pooh was based on a real bear. Yeah. But I thought we'd talk a bit about uh, the person that sort of owns Winnie yeah. first, because we should talk about someone who was actually in Winnipeg. Yes. Because Winnie the bear was never in Winnipeg at all. No, and my episode, <laughs> my part of the episode is really not at all Winnipeg related, no. but that's okay. So going back to where we were with Margaret Scott in the 1900s, you have the city of pretty immense growth, and we have people coming in by the railroad, mm -hmm. and you can start, I think, pretty much every episode about a prominent Winnipegger with, they came in on the railroad <laughs> yes. in the 1900s, or they came in with the Wolseley Expedition. Or they came from a fur trading family. That's true. Yeah. So uh, our figure this week came in on the railroad. Okay. In 1911. Uh, Harry Colburn comes in from Ontario. So he is uh, an English guy who comes to Ontario for college. Okay. He studies at the veterinary school there and then comes to Manitoba with a job for, like, the agriculture department looking after animal welfare and health. I think, didn't he go to the U of T, I think? He might have. I don't know where the veterinary college was. I only remember seeing that because I also went to the U of T, so I was like, oh, hey, I went to He went same. to Ontario's yeah. veterinary college, <laughs> right. so that's now a part of U of T, I guess. All right. It might have been a separate thing Sounds at the good. time. Um, so he spends his time as, like, a vet for basically industry animals, so uh, cows. Oh, And cool. milk. <laughs> can't can't escape it. Uh, it there's a second milk thing in this great it's wait. can't wait so at this point in time in winnipeg obviously our dairy industry is incredibly important we have a whole episode about that <laughs> yeah so you do need people to make sure the animals are healthy but within a year of colburn arriving he also signs up with the 18th mounted rifles okay as a militia officer and then he was sent to the 34th regiment of the cavalry uh, fort gary horse in 1912 okay he is one of the original officers of Fort Gary Horse. It was actually founded oh. in 1912, and he's one of the first to sign up for it. Okay. Um, the initial members come from the A Squadron of the 18th Mounted Rifles. That's how everyone kind of gets involved in it. Uh, the name Fort Gary Horse was added uh, in 1913, so it had a slightly different designation early on. Okay. And is that literal when they say Fort Gary Horse? It's like that it's like a horse-related squad? Like, is yes. It? Okay. <laughs> Yeah. It's not just, like, a fun nickname? No, no, there were, like, mounted combat Got units. It. So, yes. I always find those the names of those a little confusing. Do you? Well, not not that that is not a descriptive name. That's not what's confusing. It's just that it's so blunt, I suppose. It's really to the point, hey? Yeah. 
It's the horse unit. The horse unit <laughs> from Fort Gary. <laughs> Fort Gary horse. <laughs> they got it. Um, because they were a regiment of the Canadian militia, they have to do annual training classes in like horsemanship, troop drills, in musketry. Mm-hmm. And they also uh, attend annual training camp at Sewell Camp, or Camp Hughes, out near Brandon. Okay. So they base their operations at first out of uh, the Carson Hygienic Creamery building <laughs> on okay. Sherbert and Maryland streets. Because I guess it. the creamery had vacated part of the building and just lent it out to a militia unit briefly. Huh. Uh, Crescent Creamery buys Carson Hygienic Creamery a year later and Fort Gary Horse has to move. Crescent Creamery. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing they more were to big, say. They're a big deal. <laughs> so it's a big buy. Yeah. So for a few years, the group was training and they had parades and they were trying to like recruit new members to fill up the ranks. I guess this is still pre-war, right? This is 1912. Yeah. So we are coming up on like the cusp of a war and I don't think World War One was like a total surprise. Things were like messy in the Balkans. <laughs> when When isn't that the case? <laughs> okay. Yeah, true. So folks in Winnipeg are, of course, paying attention to what's going on in Europe. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it has pretty big like trade implications if some if a war breaks out. But also people sure. in Winnipeg have family there. Right. Yeah. So it is like a pretty popular point of like topic in the news. Um, there is an article in 1912 on the Archduke of Austria-Hungary with the headline, Silent Man of Euro- Europe has two mighty spurs to success, ambition for power and the love of a resourceful woman. Will this new leader of the Habsburg plunge Europe into a mighty war? Wow. <laughs> that is quite prescient. <laughs> uh, I'm assuming you know which Archduke this is. I can guess, yeah. <laughs> is it Archduke Franz Ferdinand? It is Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Oh, no. And he does uh, plunge Europe into war. Just well, maybe sort not, of. Not... not in the way that they were guessing at the time. It's not really his fault. <laughs> no. So on June 28th, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated. Yeah. And this leads to like a complete political spiral across Europe. Uh, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia, where Ferdinand is assassinated. The whole thing is just, like, this twisted mess of, like, this country's allied with that country, and -and so-and-so promised this to that person. Yeah. And that would take too long to get into. No, every time I have to, had to, like, explain to kids what World War I was about... (laughs) It's it's a lot harder than explaining what World War Two was about, where it was like we fought the bad Nazis. Yeah, World War One's a lot of like, well, we were allied like, with those guys, and they were allied with those other guys, and everyone was like pretty quick to like militarize. Very very quick. Uh, the shorter version basically is that after the assassination, Germany sends troop into Belgium and Luxembourg, and this violates a treaty, mm-hmm. and then Britain. Uh, gives Germany an ultimatum, remove your forces, or we'll have to declare war, and then Britain moves their forces into France. Germany obviously does not move out sure. of um, Belgium and Luxembourg, and by late July, Canadians were pretty much expecting a war. Okay. By early August of 1914, folks are actually hanging out outside of the newspaper buildings in Winnipeg just to see if oh, one wow. will actually be announced yet. Hmm. So at the time, this would mean uh, the Free Press building on Carlton Street and a newspaper row, which is Albert and McDermott, mm-hmm. where the t- uh, Tribune and Telegram were. That was in our last episode. That building was almost on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes, it was. So um, the Telegram building would print off bulletins as news came in and then stick it up outside. So you could just walk by and see whatever like updates there were on like negotiations and diplomacy and stuff. So then um, on the midnight of August 4th, German forces were still in Belgium. So the British government declares war. And Hmm. because we are a dominion of Britain, we then are also at war. Yeah. 
Uh, people in Winnipeg find out at 8 p.m. The telegram posts a bulletin outside announcing it, and the Winnipeg Free Press is a little louder with how they announce it. Okay. They had done um, more of like an old school town crier approach to the situation, where they just put a guy on a big wooden platform with a megaphone. Right. And he just announced loudly at 8 p.m. Huh. that Canada was at war. This is live tweeting. Basically, um, there's people there watching, and when war is announced, people actually break into song. What? <laughs> they start singing uh, Rule Britannia, God Save uh, the King, okay. La Marseille, uh, Old Red, White, and Blue, and Maple Leaf Forever. Hmm. This is obviously before O Canada exists as our national yeah. anthem, so we're really doing every song we can think of. All the, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the megaphone announcer informs the crowd that the British fleet had been ordered to capture or destroy the enemy, and people, like, lose it. The free press says that the effect was electric. The roar that followed resembled what takes place when a match is, to is touched to a powder keg. Wow. Um, people had kind of been expecting this to turn into a naval war. Many countries have been investing in, like, naval fleets, so I guess they were just hyped by naval battles. <laughs> it's hard to understand exactly, like, the thoughts going into, like, how excited everyone was publicly about yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, previous wars had not been the way that the first world war would ultimately be yeah I, you know they maybe didn't envision it lasting as long it lasting as long and being as you know the atrocities that would happen yeah so this is early days people i think are just excited to like defend canada and sure. defend britain um within two hours of the war being announced there is a full military parade in winnipeg um the 90th winnipeg rifle rifles get summoned to the drill hall at the osborne barracks and they lead this sort of procession up kennedy street to portage avenue with an army band uh, other spontaneous parades pop up. There's people cheering all around downtown Winnipeg. Um, a lieutenant, the lieutenant governor announces Britain will never stop while one drop of blood or one coin of money remain unspilled. People start hooting and hollering. Wow. It's not the response I would give. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the big public perception, of course, is it's kind of like rah, rah, go Winnipeg. But there were, or go Canada too, there were people in town that uh, were not thrilled. Okay. For a number of the veterans in the parade, they looked pretty grim. Mm-hmm. The ones that had actually seen combat before. Sure. And people who were staying at uh, hotels like the Fort Garry in Ro Royal Alexandra talked to a free press reporter about their families overseas uh, and oh, how yeah. worried they were about how this was going to affect them. Mm -hmm. But if you said anything like that publicly out loud, there was a pretty good chance that the crowd was going to beat you up. Okay. <laughs> um, everything was very sort of pro-Canada, pro-English, pro-French. Uh, one guy admitted publicly to being German and he had to be carried home. Oh, Oh, God. I don't know why the theme of this, like, World War One seems to be a lot of, like, weird anti-immigrant riots. Because yeah. this happens later in the Helen Armstrong episode, too. We talk about a big one near the end of the war. Yeah. Yeah, that big one where they, they caused a, a ton of damage. Yeah. Yeah. This one, they don't cause much damage. They sort of harass people and beat them up, but it's not nearly as bad as it would get later. Mm -hmm. um, the flurry of activity is centered around sort of Broadway, Osborne, downtown area. Which is, of course, the area most populated by, say, Winnipeg's middle-class Anglo-Saxons. Right. <laughs> the North End was very quiet the mm. night the war was announced. The Free Press said the foreigners in the city, many of whom belonged to nations now enemies of Great Britain, showed good common sense in keeping well out of sight. So far as known, they refrained from tactless demonstrations. That, oh, that's really interesting. Isn't it? Yeah, to have to, like, that you're now living in a country that is going to war potentially with your country. That would, yeah. Oh, I'm sure it's like, it has to be such a complicated feeling. Sure, yeah. 
Uh, there's obviously a much bigger discussion to be had about that. Um, if you want to look into it, uh, the book Winnipeg's Great War talks about this a lot. Okay. And it's great. But uh, that is day one of the war. Hmm. Winnipeg is once again divided pretty firmly by north and south ends. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the one thing that had to be done was recruit soldiers. Okay. So uh, Prime Minister Robert Borden had promised Britain 22,000 Canadian men. Okay. But the actual military was small. There were 3,000 trained permanent forces and uh, 7,000 half-trained militia members. Okay, so so they've got, you know, more than twice that to go still. Yes, they have a lot to go. So they have to start finding volunteers. So they set up a bunch of recruitment stations across the city. Newspapers begin printing all of these places where people can sign up to enlist. Mm -hmm. So there is Strathcona's Horse, which is listed as a place to stop by, but they do actually have a full complement. Uh, the 11th Army Services Corps at the Drill Hall on Broadway, 13th Field Battery, 18th Army Services Corps, 34th uh, Fort Gary Light Horse, 36th Field Battal Battery, 39th Cameron Highlanders, 90th Regiment, the Winnipeg Rifles, 100th Regiment, 106th Winnipeg Light Infantry, St. John's Ambulance, Army and Navy Vets, Legion of Frontiersmen, and then Reservists. Okay. So lots of places to drop in across the city, lots of things to sign up for. Hmm. But most of this activity is going to be centered around Fort Osborne in Winnipeg. Okay. Do you know where that is? No, I have no idea. Okay. Uh, it is roughly where the legislature is today. Oh, okay. It w had been a fur trading post, like a military fort, in around 1873. By 1914, it had been rebuilt, and it was now like a drill hall and barracks. Hmm. So it was home to the uh, Mounted Battalion, Lord Strathcona's Horse, the Princess Pats, and at the time, the legislature property, if you can imagine, it was split up into, like, four chunks. Okay. The parliament building was much smaller than it took up only, like, like... the legislature? Yeah, yeah, the ledge. It took up, like, a quarter of it. Okay. There's also the University of Manitoba. There is a drill hall. There is um, a barracks there as well. So soldiers are living on the lot. Wow. So it is it a... must have been less green space, I guess. <laughs> yes. Uh, a lot less green that. space. Um... For a while, the fort is just for, like, military training, but a bit later into World War I, Fort Osborne becomes a processing station for uh, Germans and Ukrainians being sent to internment camps across Canada. Oh, yeah. So it was known as uh, the Winnipeg Receiving Station at that point. So the recruitment drive at the time consists of parade, concert, concerts, posters, these big dramatic news stories about, like, the crimes of the Huns. Does it seem to you like we used to be able to pull together a parade faster than we can today? Oh, within hours. I feel like today it would take. Right? Like you, you were saying earlier, they were like spontaneous parades. <laughs> I don't know how you go about organizing one of those. It would be tough to get people out of the house for a spontaneous parade. I think it would be a people hard People didn't sell. have video games yet, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they were generally outside more. Like if you found out that like people in our neighborhood were planning a parade, would you go and take part in it? Okay, you know I wouldn't, but I'm not a good sample size here. <laughs> Watch from your window and go, huh, looks like a parade out there. Yeah, that's exactly what I'd do. But if there's an ice cream truck. Then I will be outside. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the recruitment drive does work. 30,000 men enlist by the end of 1914. Um, Harry Colburn enlists on August 23rd. He was sort of inevitably going to as a member. I guess he was already sort of He was like there. half trained already. Yeah. yeah, he was going to. So pretty quickly after he enlists, he is sent off to a military training camp in Quebec. Okay. En route, he receives the news that he is no longer part of Fort Gary Horse. He is now a part of the Canadian uh, Veterinary Forces. Okay. Uh, at this point in time, animals are still used pretty frequently in combat situations. We are not at the point of having, like, tanks and trucks. And the vehicles we do have are not going to be great. 
yeah. in a battlefield. They're going to break down or they're going to get stuck in something. Have you seen that that photograph that's like a bunch of soldiers that are sort of in the shape of the head of a horse? Yes. It's like like some kind of memorial to like the horses lost during the First World War. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in World War I, uh, the Canadian Corps invo- uh, needed 23,000 horses. Wow. So horses are like pretty key for moving soldiers, guns, yeah. ammunition, uh, supplies. The war wouldn't have happened without horses, mm-hmm. basically. So I guess they need a lot of veterinarians. Because horses are very fragile animals also. Are they? <laughs> I like... don't know a lot about horses. <laughs> Their leg bones are technically finger okay, bones. Okay, yes, I do know that. I do know about this, which is upsetting. What? Yeah. You, you don't know this? No. Like, their their knees are actually, like, finger joints. I don't like that. Yeah, no. I don't, a... No one does, Nick. <laughs> And now you all know and get to be upset about the, like, anatomy of a horse. Which makes their stomach just like the palm of a giant hand. (laughs) Interesting. Their head's the thumb. (laughs) But not opposable. (laughs) (laughs) But there are uh, lots of animals involved in the war effort. Uh, Most troops have dogs. Mm-hmm. That can uh, they detect poison gas faster than humans. They're used to find wounded soldiers, um, and they eat rats in the trenches. They use carrier oh, yeah. pigeons for messengers, obviously, because we still had carrier pigeons back then. Yeah, I've I've heard that pigeons are essentially like trained birds that were um, abandoned after the war. Yeah, same. yeah. <laughs> uh, and some regiments use glowworms as light sources. <laughs> oh, <laughs> silly. <laughs> I've been playing a lot of Tears of the Kingdom lately, and that sounds, oh, like, that sounds like something I would that you would do. Like, it does a little bit. You yeah. got your jarl worms. You like attach it to your shield so you can yeah see in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> so there's lots of needs for vets in the war. Uh, Colburn and the rest of the unit is set to Valcarche in Quebec, which is where all of the infantry brigades are being organized. And then during a stopover on the way. Uh, in White River, Ontario, Colburn steps out of the train to get some fresh air. Mm-hmm. And on the train station, he meets this guy. It's a hunter. And the hunter is just hanging out with a little black bear cub on a leash. Huh. The uh, hunter had killed the bear's mother. Okay. And had found the cub. And I guess was just, like, hauling the cub around until he could find someone to, like, do something with it. Interesting. Uh, so he was waiting for someone to come and take it off of his hands. And Colburn agreed to. Okay. He paid the guy $20. And then got back on the train with a with little... A, with a bear. With a little baby black bear. Aww. It's really cute, but, like, if I saw a man with a baby bear on a leash, I don't know that my first thought would be... Talk to the man with the bear on the leash. Talk to the man by his bear. <laughs> <laughs> Take it on the train with me. I mean, $20 for a bear today is a steal. <laughs> so he names the bear Winnipeg after his new hometown. Aw. And then she's better known as Winnie, obviously. And then Winnie uh, accompanies Colburn to Valcarche. Hmm. And this crazy thing here is Winnie is not the only pet at Valcarche. She, or at the other military camp, she isn't even the only bear. What? <laughs> so Captain Williams, who is with the Strength Conas, is training out at Camp Hughes or Camp Sewell and notes that every unit in Camp Sewell had bears. The men had a lot of fun with them. They were very playful. Okay, that's so interesting because, like, I always assumed that this was just, like, a weird thing that Colburn did. Apparently, no, he was like, my unit doesn't have a bear. Everyone's getting bears <laughs> these days. <laughs> um, at Valcarche, Sam Greenlaw, who was with the uh, 236th Battalion, had been out and about in Quebec and had fa- found these two abandoned bear cubs. Sam takes one in. It becomes his little pet for a while. So there's a second bear cub. Do these people not know about how bears grow up into adult bears? Seemingly not. The thing is, um, Greenlaw's superiors were like, 
you cannot take this bear overseas. <laughs> you have to get rid of it. Yeah. So he uh, donates the bear to the Boston Zoo because he was stopping by oh. there on like a stopover. Okay, but Colburn apparently was allowed to take, take his bear? Yes. Because not all animals were sent away. Soldiers aren't like supposed to have pets. Okay. But the issue is that it's very hard to stop anyone <laughs> from having a pet. Sure. <laughs> Especially like once you're overseas and you're in like a combat zone, like you need some like moral support. Sure. I can see overlooking like, uh, you know, whatever. The guy's got a like barnyard cat he found. Yep. If I saw like one of my men <laughs> with a bear cub, with a bear cub, I'd be like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Listen, we can bend the rule sometimes. So dogs are common, obviously, and mm -hmm. people do actually smuggle these like little tiny dogs in their coats Aww. across ships. There's also cats. Some people have goats. Okay. People take in foxes. Huh. And some troops actually start taking in like lion cubs. Okay. Basically, it just feels like people are trying to like one up each other. Maybe. Yeah. The thing is, uh, military units would take these pets and appoint them as like the sort of unofficial mascot of the unit. Okay. So it's a morale boosting thing. They would have like parades for the goats, for example. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cute. There are um, very funny pictures of, like, these goats hanging around in combat zones. <laughs> so confusing for the goat. No. Most of the time, though, the, like, more exotic animals are picked up while the troop is overseas. Okay. And is, like, walking around and finds something and takes it with them. Like, yeah. no one's taking a lion cub from home to gotcha. the combat zone. They find it in combat zone. They're like, this is our pet now. Yeah. Uh, Colburn is different in that he does take Winnie with him overseas. <laughs> So he um, leaves on October 3rd, 1914, and they depart on the SS Manitou and four other liners for Salisbury Plain. He takes Winnie on this boat across the ocean Wild. to England. She must have been a good bear. Apparently. To be, like, totally fine on a boat. Uh, it seems like everyone loved her. Like, at Salisbury Plain, the other soldiers take to her pretty quickly, and she follows them around like a tame dog. Aww. There's a handful of pictures of Winnie around this time because everyone had cameras and was taking photos of this bear that was, like, doing tricks and wrestling with them. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you shouldn't have a bear as a pet. No, <laughs> you, no you really shouldn't. Maybe. Like, I need to do, like, a public service announcement somewhere in the middle here in that they are wild animals. They're not domesticated. No, and, like, you, you can only really ever partly tame a wild animal, right? It's yeah. going to be unpredictable, especially once it's grown. Yeah. But for the time being, Winnie is the troop's little pet. Yeah. But then when they are about to ship out to France, Colburn is told that he can't bring Winnie into an active war zone. <laughs> Shocking news. <laughs> so he's told to remove her from the brigade headquarters, and he takes her to uh, the London Zoo on December 7th, 1914, where he leaves her mm -hmm. over the course of the war. And once again, Winnie is not alone. Like, obviously, there's the original zoo animals, but... Other soldiers are dropping off their pets at oh, the really? London Zoo. Yes. <laughs> so there's like a whole process. They're having to go to all the units and be like, listen. <laughs> the London Zoo will take it. You just got to get rid you of You got to get rid of the lion cub, man. There's a monkey oh. that survived two different battles earlier in the war. And, and then, then was given was like, to the zoo. Can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's other bears from Canada. Hmm. There's deer. So like other people were bringing bears over from Canada okay. and just left them at the London Zoo. This makes me think that the hunter's story about how he was, like, just waiting around is, like, made up. Maybe he was just, like, he heard that, like, troops were taking we're, bears. We're bear crazy yeah. right now. <laughs> the hottest trend for a military yeah. unit is a bear. <laughs> um, where Winnie stands out, though, is that she is, like, unusually tame for the other animals. Mm -hmm. The other ones are still, like, wild animals. Winnie's pretty friendly. So Colburn leaves her there in the zoo's care, and he uh, ships out, and he spends the rest of the war with the veterinary forces, 
He does go on leave periodically, and every time he went on leave, you can see in his diary, he did go visit Winnie at the zoo. Aww. He would make a little note, like, oh, I went to the zoo today. Yeah. And he wasn't fully planning on, like, picking her up and taking her back home when the war was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was a captain over the course of the war, so he does, like, move up in the ranks. Uh, each division has a vet unit with a mobile hospital. And then when the war ends, he remains in London with the service for a time. During that period, it seems like he changed his mind about taking Winnie home. Okay. Maybe because she was um, popular and also fully grown. Or not quite fully grown, but bigger than she would have been when she was, like, a little baby. I mean, that's, you know, bringing a bear cub is one thing. Even, I would say, like, after a year, they're, like, they're not small. Yeah. I mean, you know more about bears than I do. (laughs) I've I've seen so many bears this year. (laughs) Yeah. No, I've seen a lot of yearlings, and they are, like, hip height. Okay, yeah, that's going to be hard to bring home on a ship. Yeah. So he uh, decides that he is going to leave Winnie with the London Zoo. Okay. And sort of donates Winnie to the zoo. And the London Zoo presumably is happy to keep her. She's a... She is very popular. She is a big attraction. Because she is so tame, like, kids can go up and, like, touch her and pet Mm -hmm. her and, like, see her up close. Yeah. Which, again, do not do. No. (laughs) (laughs) But this seems to have been, like, just a thing at the London Zoo. There's also a giant tortoise that kids were riding around on. Huh. I feel like animal care standards... Have changed a lot. Zoos have changed a lot. I mean, we did a whole episode about the zoo. Yeah, but I don't think the Winnipeg Zoo had a lot of, like, want to sit on this big tortoise. No, no, that's true. But they have changed a lot from the, like, almost like a gallery of animals, right? Where it's like, here they are in their little displays. Yeah. To, like, it's more like a natural habitat. Actually, I have a story about the London Zoo. Oh, do you? Which is that I went there, um, and they had this um, enclosure for gorillas, and it was so big that I could not spot a single gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, glad for the gorillas that they had so much space, but yeah, didn't didn't get to see a gorilla that day. I mean, it's like Journey to Churchill sometimes when you go, but like the polar bears sometimes wander off. Yeah, that's sort of, I guess they have like windows on all sides, so you can usually spot a polar bear. But yeah, not a gr- Maybe they heard you were coming and were like, we gotta get out of here. Maybe there weren't any gorillas. Like, Ooh. maybe they were somewhere else. I don't know. We'll just say that they're hiding. Yeah. And then we won't have to admit that, like, they're not here right now. We built the enclosure and couldn't afford the gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> That's some zoo tycoon nonsense right there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's lots of articles about, like, Winnie hanging out with kids and stuff. She becomes this, like, real popular subject mm-hmm. for many, many years. And uh, Colburn goes home to Winnipeg. He doesn't, I don't think, I don't think he ever goes back to visit Winnie again. That would be a pretty big trip to go visit a bear. He opens a veterinary clinic on Corridon Avenue. Oh. Yeah. Stays there for the rest of his life. Uh, But the Winnipeg Colburn comes back to is like a radically different Winnipeg than Mm -hmm. he left. Because he left in 1914 and came back in 1919. Yeah. So women get the right to vote. Prohibition's enacted. There's been a lot of strikes. Yeah, that's true. And that is going to be what we talk about in our next episode. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, Winnie has some adventures of her own, including, uh, famously, A.A. Milne and his son, Christopher Robin. And this is where I think I hand the reins over to you, Alex. Yeah. Um, Okay, so, yeah, as you mentioned, Christopher Robin Milne was a frequent visitor to the London Zoo, along with his dad, Alan Alexander Milne, who I think most people are probably more familiar with as A.A. Milne. Yeah. Right? Um, The author of the Winnie the Pooh books. And Alan Milne was, I'll talk a little bit about kind of him as a guy. Okay. Um, so he was an aspiring author who he had the good fortune of marrying a woman named Dorothy or more often Daphne de Selincourt. 
um, who was the daughter of the editor of Punch Magazine. Oh! Do you know, Kate, do you know what Punch Magazine is? Yeah, I actually have, like, a bound copy of a bunch of old Punch comics that I bought at Bison Books. Oh, fun! Oh, I love Bison Books. (laughs) They're really good, but expensive. Yep. Um, yeah, so if people don't know, it's, like, a weekly humor magazine. It ran from the 1840s to the 1990s. It ran for a long time. With, like, a weird little resurrection in the 1990s as well. Um... So anyway, he, of course, starts working at Punch uh, as a writer and also as an editor. Um, But he also goes to join the First World War. I mean, who doesn't? Uh, Yes, right? (laughs) So um, he goes off to the war. He becomes a signal officer. Um, He does come home for a little while. Uh, He gets trench fever and is sent home in 1916. And he kind of, like, puts on some plays while he's home, which is interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah. But then he goes back to the war. um, And when he's permanently discharged in 1919 he finds that his father-in-law has in the meantime filled his position at punch oh or his father-in-law yeah that's rude i mean i get like he was gone for like five years but yeah still it's not great for your father-in-law to be like or to find out when you get back yes um so he then focuses on just kind of like freelance writing okay um in 1920 his son christopher robin milne was born um, so in real life, um, people are probably familiar in the books with the name Christopher, Christopher Robin, Robin, but in real life, he was mostly called uh, Billy sometimes for whatever reason. A.A. Milne had this whole thing about how he didn't want to name his son William, but wanted to call him Billy. <laughs> <laughs> so they did that for a while. So he could have just named his son Billy. Sure. I know did. that wasn't like done at the time, but he could have just named his son Billy. Well, he didn't. He <laughs> named him Christopher. <laughs> Um, but more frequently, he was actually called Moon, um, because this was um, his mispronunciation of Milne when he was a little kid. <laughs> I think that's really cute. That's fun. Moon is a very hippie name for a kid. Yeah, and sometimes they called him, like, Billy Moon. Aww. Um, so, yeah, he's born in 1920, and um, Daphne's family wealth allowed the family to live pretty comfortably. Like, she kept her personal maid when she moved out and got married. Oh, wow. And then also Christopher Robin had a nanny. Um, and of course, he had a favorite teddy bear. Mm. Uh, so the teddy bear was from Harrods. Um, it was like an Edward bear. That was like the model of the bear. Right. Okay. Um, but he named the bear after his favorite bear at the London Zoo. I wonder which bear that is. <laughs> so, of course, that was Winnie the bear from Winnipeg. Um, and here's a quote from um, the beginning of the book Winnie the Pooh. When Christopher Robin goes to the zoo, he goes to where the bears are, and he whispers something to the third keeper from the left, and doors are unlocked, and we wander through dark passages and up steep stairs, until at last we come to the special cage, and the cage is opened, and out trots something brown and furry, and with the happy cry of, oh, bear, Christopher Robin rushes into its arms. Now this bear's name is Winnie, which shows what a good name for bears it is. Oh. So I think I kind of assumed when I read that 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 was like, poetic license no people went up and hugged Winnie well and then I actually found a photograph of him with Winnie the bear yeah there is a story in the Tribune that someone was going to like visit the zoo and I think was like oh there's a bear that you can go meet and assumed it was going to be a cub but by this point Winnie was fully grown and they opened the door and there was a fully grown bear like lumbering out and (laughs) the guy just panicked (laughs) I bet the title of the article was like Winnie enjoys a little joke (laughs) a little joke about hi I'm a full-size bear (laughs) Here you can see, like, in this picture, like, oh, Winnie's yeah. still kind of, like, not full size, maybe. No, I'm, well, also, black bears don't get that big I compared guess. to other bears. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I actually like I was wondering like, oh, was it like a special thing that he got to go see Winnie? But no, no apparently literally just... anyone could go see Winnie. <laughs> so he didn't have to go whisper to the third zookeeper on the left. They're just letting anyone in there. Probably you just have to ask. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, of course, that's the origin of the name Winnie for the stuffed bear. But the origin of the name Pooh is a little muddier. Um, it was previously the name of a swan, but that doesn't really answer any questions. Why was the swan named Pooh? I don't know. <laughs> so I think it's just kind of like a made-up kid name. Probably, right? Yeah, like when I was a kid, I had a cat named Morosa, and that was just like a name that like me or my sister came up with. All right, yeah, like, I think not? kids just make, make things, things up. up. Yeah, so Pooh, I'm pretty sure, was just a made-up kid thing. Um, and so the bear's name was Winnie the Pooh. All right. Um, and Winnie the Pooh's first appearance in print was in a poem printed in 1924 in Punch magazine. Um, oh, do you want to read the poem? Sure. It's under there. The, oh, it's called Teddy Bear? Yeah. A bear, however hard he tries, grows tubby without exercise. Our teddy bear is short and fat, which is not to be wondered at. He gets what exercise he can by, following up, by falling off the ottoman, but generally seems to lack the energy to clamber back. <laughs> So that, I think, is the first stanza of it. It's very cute. Oh. Um, but that is not Winnie the Pooh by name yet. No, that's just a teddy bear. But that, Did Milne write it? Is that? Yes. Okay. But it was written by Milne, and it was written about the teddy bear, Winnie yeah. the Pooh. Um, but Pooh first appears by name in A Christmas Story uh, for the London Evening News in 1925. Ah. Um, which is also, I believe, read over, like, local BBC radio the next day as well. With some quaint British broadcasting. Isn't it? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> this whole bit is very quaint. <laughs> um, and around the same time, Milne also writes uh, When We Were Very Young, which is a book of poems. Um, and it is an immediate hit. Um, it allows the family to buy a country home at the edge of the Ashland Forest. I was forest. actually going to ask if a country estate was going to yes. be brought up while we were talking about the quaintness <laughs> like two seconds ago. So I'm glad the Here's immediate a... pivot was into a country estate. It's, I don't know. Did you ever, like, did you read any of these books of poems or did you read Winnie the Pooh? I'm sure I must have read Winnie the Pooh, but I don't, like, remember anything specific. Yeah. I think I watched, like, the cartoons and stuff more than anything else. Yeah, it's interesting. And, um... Like, I, I used to read these books of poems a lot. I was really into, I really liked the next book of poems that he writes, Now We Are Six, um, when I was a kid. And I do feel like this first one is, like, more urban. Interesting. Right? Like, he's going to the zoo and stuff in it. Um, yeah, were you, like, were you a Winnie the Pooh kid, actually, while we're, like, while we're talking about that? No, I was a 101 Dalmatians kid. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can only be one or the other. <laughs> I've never thought of those as being, like, the two choices, but sure. I mean, there's lots of choices. Yes. He's also big into Balto. If you want to talk about, like, cartoon animals. Okay, wait, who's Balto? Um, a, like, husky that, like, brought penicillin to people up north. There was a cartoon about it okay, that I, I loved. <laughs> it's maybe more obscure than Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> it probably is. I don't know. People probably know that. I had I access to satellite by the time I was, like, eight, and before that, it was what would what was on cable or what we could get on VHS at the library. Oh, yeah. I had a lot of what we could get on VHS at the library. Watched a lot of NFB shorts. <laughs> there was a, uh, a Saturday morning block where they took an hour or a half hour and put Winnie the Pooh and the Gummy Bears cartoon together. Oh. And sometimes I still get like the end of the theme song in my oh. head, which is like, come share the fun. It's Winnie and the Gummies rolled into one. And that's like, that's in my head for oh, wow. 35 years or I whatever. Love that. Right? Yeah. Oh, it's also big on Sesame Street. Oh, yeah. Sesame Street's great. Um, yeah, no, I was a pretty big 
Winnie the Pooh You kid. seem like you would be a Winnie the Pooh kid. I don't, <laughs> I don't know, know what that means. means. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either, but it seems right. In any case, back to the Milne family. Um, <laughs> so Christopher describes his mother as being um, sort of like a cat is what he says oh. and that she was like happiest alone kind of like hanging out in the garden or like going on walks okay like he'd be like oh can we go for a walk together and she was she'd be like oh how about like i go for a walk and you meet me on the way back <laughs> <laughs> honestly is very relatable to me <laughs> it sounds like you yeah <laughs> Um, but she would occasionally spend time um, playing with him. They kind of like play these imaginative pretend games with his okay. uh, toys. So Christopher says in his memoirs, I enjoyed playing with my mother. This was something she was good at. There were plenty of things she couldn't do, had never been taught to do, didn't need to do because there was someone to do them for her. So I don't know. He's a little <laughs> critical of his mother in this funny way. But I think like what I read in his memoir is that she had this almost sort of like suppressed creativity. Okay. Like, she sort of grew up in this, like, wealthy family and never really had to do anything. Right. But maybe had this sort of creative edge that was never fully explored. Um, and so they'd play these games with Winnie the bear um, and also his other stuffed animals, including Piglet and Eeyore, which mm. were kind of like the original three, um, in this country setting. And this becomes the inspiration for Milne's first Winnie the Pooh book in 1926. Okay. Do you want to see the original stuffed animals? Yes. This is how this, sad do they look? Like, this is a really hard episode to do without like it being a visual medium. So <laughs> hopefully people can just like look these up. You're right. I mean, Winnie the Pooh, the teddy bear looks like basically any like 1950s or before teddy bear where it, it's just kind of a bear. It's like a bear with like arms that look like they move. My favorite is Piglet. Piglet is brown. I think probably from like a- getting... Age. Yeah, from age. I I think it's probably mostly age, but Piglet does look a bit like a weird root you'd pull up in the garden. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it's like a little wrinkly and like not quite distinctive pig features. He says in, in his memoirs that like at some point she like, like Piglet had like her nose bitten off by a dog and stuff like. Oh, you couldn't tell from looking at it. I'm joking. You can't <laughs> yeah. tell that something's gone horribly wrong with the nose. Um, Eeyore. Looks um, like Eeyore from the cartoon. Yes. Um, Why'd they make the donkey with its head hanging down. so they didn't um it was originally like with its head up but over time it had like lost whatever like the stiffening in its neck and so oh. kind of drooped and that's how he ended up getting his like depressed character like melancholy character oh i was gonna wonder yeah like who made the depressed donkey yeah. that makes more sense that it's like that they were like oh he like looks sad because he's old <laughs> um and then you can see in this picture also tigger and then kanga yeah. which uh were later additions mm-hmm. rue unfortunately got lost in the forest oh well yeah i'm surprised none of the other ones did either based yeah. on like what i've seen other kids lose in the forest i was gonna say like every kid has that like that one time when they lose a prized stuffed animal and then cry for days about it. I lost a Lizzie McGuire branded sweater Aww. in Florida when I was a kid and it genuinely crushed me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so those are the originals. We'll definitely put up those pictures. Yeah. Um, so Milne follows this up. Um, first of all, he writes the, the book of poems that I mentioned, um, Now We Are Six, in 1927. And then in 1928, he writes The House at Pooh Corner. And this is the last book for children he ever writes. Really? Yeah. So he's written, like, two books of poems, two Winnie the Pooh books, and he's like, done. Are the poems all for kids, or is it more like adult poetry? No, they're kids' poems. Okay. I feel like you can, like, 
enjoy them as an adult. Okay. They almost feel like things that, like, an adult is meant to read for their kid. Oh, okay. I don't know. Um, but Winnie the Pooh is kind of a phenomenon. Like, it's, in, popularity is intense and immediate. It's not one of those things where it's like, oh, like, years later, someone found it. Like, people right away are really, are like, no, we love this freaking bear. Interesting. I'm, I'm assuming you didn't look into what other, like, kids books there were um, at the time. No, I've, <laughs> I would have no idea. Because it's nothing I'm familiar with either. I'm assuming there were other, like, kids books, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess the one that I can think of, because I know it's based around the war, is The Little Prince, which right. also is very popular. But, like, the ones I know of are ones that are yeah. very popular, right? Yeah, I'm just wondering what the market was like. Um, like, if Winnie was kind of exceptional in that sense. Well, I think so, yes. Because, so, signed copies of When We Were Very Young, which was that first book of children's yep. poems, um, could be bought in New York in 1926 for two, $225. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> That's in 1926 money. <laughs> That's so much. Um, but Milne wrote that ideas didn't come to him easily. So I would hypothesize <laughs> That's that. Rough. Yeah, That's yeah, rough. That's rough to want to yeah. be an author when you can't come up with stuff. <laughs> well, I think he meant like especially for the Winnie the Pooh books. Oh, okay. Right? Like he was saying like these, you know, they didn't just come to him, right? Yeah. And like I would kind of hypothesize that I think he was getting most of his ideas from like watching his wife and kid play. Oh, probably. And they'd like do a little story game and he'd be like oh that would be a good one <laughs> he's taking notes in the corner yeah can i tell you how much that book is worth yes, yes. today um so what was it 220 dollars in 1926 yeah yeah three thousand six hundred and forty eight dollars it's an expensive book i mean there's no way it doesn't cost like way more now in real life because it's inflated I mean, beyond belief yes yeah. but like when you were buying it then it was only like four years old yeah <laughs> yeah a lot of money. Yeah, imagine dropping three grand on a first edition signed of any book yeah. that's come out in the past like decade. I don't even think like that's signed true, copies hey? of like like okay. Imagine getting like a signed copy of like Twilight, right? Twilight was or Harry Potter, right? Sure. The bigger books from when we were like teens. I don't think I'm sure they only went for like a couple of hundred. I bet people have pay, probably people have paid that much. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they have, yeah. but like ludicrous. Yes. Um, in any case, the problem is now that, um, Christopher Robin is, like, outgrowing these games. Oh, no. Kids, at, just like bears, <laughs> kids grow up. Um, and so... And you can't take him overseas anymore. No. <laughs> can't, can't take a kid on a boat past 10. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> just in case listeners thought that was true. <laughs> You can take There's your children some, on both. Some nine-year-old listening, being like, "What?" <laughs> um, so things take a bit of a, a little bit of a turn here. Um, in 1930, um, the U.S. and Canadian merchandising rights to Winnie the Pooh are purchased by a guy named Stephen Schlesinger uh, from Milne. So Milne is kind of like, "Yeah, I'm like not really doing anything with this. Right, I'm yeah. kind of done with it." So he sells them. Does to this he guy. sign them fully away? Um, no, I don't think ah. so. So he's, well, he signs over the U.S. and Canadian rights, right? Okay. So I guess, I believe at this point, the Milne family still had the, like, U.K. rights. Okay. Um, and Schlesinger is kind of an interesting guy. Like, he didn't invent things himself. He's kind of like a branding guy. Like, he would ah. buy brands and kind of, like, expand them and merchandise them. Okay. Like, he was involved in, like, popularizing Tarzan. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and then like a few other like less popular things. Like <laughs> Winnie the Pooh is really his winner. Is he the guy that founded Tarzana? 
I don't know. I feel like the guy who had the rights to Tarzan also founded like the town of Tarzana or the city of Tarzana. Wait, tell me what the city of Tarzana is. It's in California, I believe. I do not know about this. Do we have another like Ford yeah, city? Yeah, a thing? suburban neighborhood in Los Angeles, California. Huh. Yeah. And then it was something to the effect of like, these people are making two. No, he like bought the town is what it was. That's the story. Huh. Didn't Bruce Willis buy a town also? <laughs> Probably. He's <laughs> Bruce like Willis. A modern comparison. I think Bruce Willis bought a town. Gonna, gonna buy a town, baby. <laughs> Um, yeah, I have, no, I have no idea if he was the man who also had a town in California called Tarzana. That is some real 1920s entrepreneur nonsense, though. With the money he made off of Winnie the Pooh, maybe. Um, so yeah, he built Pooh from, like, merely popular into, like, a popular franchise, right? Okay, With, yeah. like, dolls, records, board games, a radio show, like, all kinds of stuff. I actually had a Winnie the Pooh record when I was a kid. Really? Yeah. Well, it was, was Edgar just, like, Rice Burroughs. Sorry. Oh, no. yeah, no, that's the that's the author of yes. the original Tarzan. Oh, that yeah. makes make, that makes yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I think I had like one of those like viewfinder clicker things yeah. that had one of the Pooh pictures in it. <laughs> yeah, so before this it was just like it was just the books, right? right? Yeah. And so now you can get all kinds of Winnie the Pooh merchandise. Um, and the popularity of Winnie the Pooh um, increases throughout the 1940s. Schlesinger also popularizes the depiction of Pooh with, like, his little red t-shirt. Right, yes. Which, like, wasn't a thing in the books. He kind of drew him that way. And then in the 40s, they make dolls. Um, uh, I guess it helps if you're making a doll to have a distinctive feature. Yes, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. But, yeah, like, otherwise he's just a bear. <laughs> well, this is the thing with Pumpkinhead also. We talked about one of our Christmas episodes who was, like, Eaton's yeah. Rudolph knockoff basically and pumpkin head has this little tuft of hair on his That's head right. that otherwise looks like a completely normal teddy bear yeah so you just like commission a bunch of bears and then like take some extra fluff and just kind of half put of them, it on half of them you put a tuft on their head and the other half you give a red shirt and you you're good to go you've diversified the market yeah. you've got two different things going on you're perfect and now the kids need to buy both of them right so yes you've got it made um in the meantime life seems to have been less idyllic for the milne family kind of after this sort of brief period. Um, So Alan separates from Daphne. Um, I I believe they stay married, but kind of for all intents and purposes, they're just living separate lives. getting a divorce is so hard back then, right? It's so much easier to just be like, we don't live together anymore. Yes. And so, like, he's living comfortably off Winnie the Pooh royalties, but he um, kind of resented that he was only known as a children's author. Yeah. Which I, I think is probably the other reason he stopped writing the books. Is he didn't want to be a children's author? Yeah. I mean, he had written other stuff, right? We had talked about maybe for the bonus episode, we'll maybe read the Red Tree Mystery. Right, yeah. Or Red House Mystery. I've forgotten the name of it. Oh, my God. So it didn't stick with you. No. Well. Have you read it yet? <laughs> I've started it. Okay. Yeah. Um, But Christopher Milne um, kind of, like, enjoyed the fame of being, like, the Christopher Robin, like, when he was a little kid. Kind of. He talks about, like, like, there's this famous portrait of him with his dad, like a famous photograph, and he looks kind of, like, forlorn in it. And he writes, like, if I looked sad, it's probably because, like, I was because it was a nice summer day and my best friend was outside. (laughs) And I had to be, like, taking stupid publicity photos. Also, I mean, like, how old would he have been at this point? Yeah, so, like, when he was, like, when the books were first coming out, I think it was kind of, like, fun and cool yeah. that people were, like, oh, you're Christopher Robin. But there's nothing teens hate more than fun yes. things. So he talks about cool when things. he was, like, you know, like, you know, 13 or 14, like, you know, like, an old lady sent him some, like, Winnie the Pooh dolls she made, and he has to write her back, be like, thanks so much. Oh, yeah, I, 
I would also have hated that at yes, 14. Right? And it's like embarrassing, I'm sure. Oh, like, like your, your friends, friends at school are yes. like, are you like the Winnie the Pooh kid? Yeah, he um, wrote that some of his father's work brought him, quote, toe-curling, fist-clenching, lip-biting embarrassment. Oh, man. So, yeah. Oh, man, to be a teenager. Yeah. that was A teenager known for what you did when you were, like, six. That was specifically about a poem that was written about him, like, saying his little prayers, which <laughs> I guess he just, like, found really embarrassing. Um, yeah, and he also talks about um how the books kind of like colored his understanding of his own childhood oh interesting like sometimes you know he couldn't remember like oh did i make up poo sticks first and then my dad wrote a story about it or was it the other way around hmm. do you know what poo sticks is no okay that's a <laughs> it's a game where you throw like um sticks off a bridge and then you watch them float over to the other side <laughs> and you like see which stick comes first or whatever okay yeah anyway poo so, sticks yeah poo sticks can't sure. believe you don't know poo sticks. <laughs> Does, doesn't matter. Um, but just like it, it kind of colors his memories in this odd way where his childhood is almost sort of half fictionalized um, and, and almost sort of curated. Like mm. after the first book, like they bought Tigger and Kanga and like they were his real stuffed animals, but they were also bought intentionally to be like, hey, kid, play with these. Make something up for me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is I can see how that would be very strange. Yeah. Um, so as a result, and I'm sure for other reasons as well, he had kind of a fraught relationship with his parents as he got older. Um, he didn't see his mother for around 15 years before Whoa. her death. Um, she also refused to see him on her deathbed, which is kind of crazy. Oh, OK. So there's a lot going on there. Yeah. I mean, there was also like, I think, other stuff going on with her maybe like mental health yeah. stuff or whatever but um yeah i think he does sort of you know come more to terms with it as he gets older but um when christopher was an adult he did open a bookstore um where he refused to sell winnie the Pooh books <laughs> <laughs> he's just sort of like i just want to be a guy with a bookstore leave me alone yeah i just want to be christopher and not christopher robin do you stop going by billy at some point oh yeah i think <laughs> billy was just like when he was a little kid okay and moon i'm sure was not <laughs> I think he was just like Chris or Christopher yeah. after a while. Um, so let's talk about Disney getting involved. Yes. Yeah. This is probably the Winnie the Pooh that everyone now is familiar with. Yes. It's the one I'm obviously the most familiar yeah, with. Yeah, absolutely. Unless you were the daughter of booksellers like I was. <laughs> this right, is, yes. Yeah, this is the, yeah, the Disney was not. you'd be familiar with. Um, yeah, so in 1953, Stephen Schlesinger, who still had those U.S. and Canadian rights, dies. And in 1956, uh, Alan Milne dies. Mm. So shortly thereafter, I'm sensing some rights are up for grabs. Yes, that's exactly right. So um, Disney purchases the rights to Winnie the Pooh from each of their respective widows. Okay, which means they basically have like worldwide distribution rights now and merchandising. Rights. Okay. Um. So one mill biographer writes that um, at Disney there was a quote cult of Pooh. <laughs> there were like a number of animators and writers there who just like loved the stories and were like lobbying for a Winnie the Pooh film <laughs> um, instead though Walt Disney after he gets these rights he gives the project to this guy Wolfgang Retherman who usually directed more like action kind of oriented films like still Disney films yeah. but you know um, and he seems to have seen this assignment as like a punishment <laughs> So it's kind of unclear why that was the the road they it, took. It may have been a punishment. It, it may have been. I there was some um kind of hypothesizing that like maybe Disney was worried that they would want to like stick super closely to the source material if he gave oh. it to all these like Winnie the Pooh fanatics. 
they had just recently before this released the Alice in Wonderland film. Okay. Which apparently, I didn't know this, was like a commercial flop. Interesting. And is also like a British kids book. Oh, okay. So then there's some more reason to be worried then. Yes. So I think they were like, maybe we don't do another like overly sentimental British I don't think the Disney brand has ever been big on taking creative risks necessarily, especially. That's true. Like, if they flopped Alice in Wonderland, I don't think they're going to repeat it with yeah, yeah. that again. But this director had done Sword in the Stone, 101 Dalmatians. 101 Dalmatians. Aristocats. I loved, oh, and the Aristocats. I loved Robin both Hood. of those. <laughs> so it seems like you yeah. more like at least a handful of animal-based movies, Yeah, too. that's true. But I wonder if those came after Winnie the Pooh. I I'm unclear in the timeline here. Sword in the Stone and Dalmatians were before. Okay. okay, yeah. So, like, Sword in the Stone, obviously, is a pretty different kind of film than... Yeah, there's those squirrels, though. Yeah, that's true. Was Sword in the Stone a flop, or am I thinking of the Black Cauldron? Oh, Black Cauldron was, was like, erased from existence. Yeah. <laughs> that so, might be the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, And so, Winnie the Pooh is um kind of Americanized in the first Disney animation. Okay. Um, So, he is given an American accent which is kind of funny. They also add gopher. Like gopher is a north a gopher yeah. is a north american animal that yeah. isn't in the original books and also they don't have those in the UK. Um and so um Americans really like this first uh this first short. It's called Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. It's released in 1966. It's like a short feature. It's not okay. a full film. So Americans love it, but the like Brits hate it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. If you grow up with like this is my favorite book since like the 1920s. <laughs> yes. Um, when the Americans take it and are like, it's got a different accent. There's new animals. Yeah. I can, like, I can see myself complaining about that 100%. This seems like a thing we would be texting yeah. about, like, oh, they adapted it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> One newspaper accuses Disney of murdering Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe may a bit much, but like, that's, I feel like this one happens every time there's like a book to movie adaptation, right? People have very big feelings. Yes. And sometimes, especially about like nostalgia childhood things. Oh yeah, 100%. I mean at this point, right? This is like forty years old, right? This so text. it's a bunch of adults who grew yes. up loving it, who are now like, "This was my childhood identity." That Walt Disney himself yeah. is personally <laughs> stabbed. Um, oh, notably Ernest Shepard, who is the artist for the Winnie the Pooh books, hated it. <laughs> so that's that's yeah. a shame. Um, Ernest Shepard's a great name. Also. It is a great name. You know, I tried to find some stuff about him. Um, there's a book about him, but the person who had written it seems to have written about everything but his Winnie the Pooh work. I'm like, I don't know if they were just trying to be like, QT did other stuff too. Interesting. But it was hmm. not that helpful for this episode, unfortunately. Um, but in December of that same year, Walt Disney actually dies. Do you? Okay. I have a fact. Do you know what the last words Walt Disney wrote no. were? What did he write? Kurt Russell. Oh, <laughs> what does it mean? She just wrote Kurt Russell's name. That's it. <laughs> Huh, he was a very popular child actor at he the did, time. He did also, like, he was a Disney actor at yeah, the time, too. Like I computer war tennis he, shoes like, and stuff, yeah. Probably he wanted him for a film, <laughs> I guess. It's just funny that Walt Disney's last, like, written words are <laughs> Kurt Russell. I must I must convey this from beyond the grave. <laughs> anyway, Disney um, does. Yeah, so, um, like you were saying, like, Disney is not always the most, um, like, risk-taking kind of company. And so, like, especially after Walt dies, right? They're kind of like, what can we make that's like a safe bet? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're gonna ju- we're gonna make another Winnie the Pooh, right? Yeah. So they make another um, short one, but this time the people who are in charge assign the the Pooh fans to it. The cult oh. of Pooh get to do get to do their Winnie. And the they've Pooh been movie. waiting for how long at this point? Like years. Yeah, and years. years. Um, 
this version's a lot less Americanized. Um, the people people in the UK like it a lot better. Oh, good. It actually wins an Oscar. Huh. Yeah. Um, and then they make also a third kind of like featurette, they called them in 1974. And in 1977, they splice those together into one feature like length film. Okay. So obviously since then, they've made a ton of other animations. And I even had like um, Winnie the Pooh, like like math and spelling games when i was a kid oh yeah yeah yeah. which actually like were quite fun um so yeah there obviously there have been a ton of things um made since then but those original shorts are really like the winnie the pooh that is known basically the framework for all of the merch and the games that come after right yeah almost worldwide i should say oh yeah (laughs) unless um you happen to have grown up in eastern europe in which case you may be familiar with a very different winnie the pooh um so there are a number of sort of like unofficial translations of the original winnie the pooh stories in the soviet union but the most popular one is by this guy uh boris sahodev and as he describes it his version is like a retelling rather than a translation okay so like people at some point are like hey this isn't actually the same as the book and he's like no i know this is Winnie the Pooh fan fiction I wrote yeah. functionally. <laughs> no, like it's like the same kind of basic <laughs> stories, but he's just like, eh, I like made it more Russian or whatever. Okay. Um, so that also means that the eventual Winnie the Pooh animated shorts, um, which are written partly by Zahodech, um, were kind of like their own thing. Um, Christopher Robin, first of all, like isn't in oh, the Soviet Winnie the Pooh, like, at all. Um, there are a few other changes as well, but also apparently, like, the director who made the Soviet animated films um, had no idea about the Disney version. He had not seen it. Had no <laughs> point of reference. Okay. So the illustrations are just completely different. Um, Does Winnie look more like a bear? Here, I'll show you. He looks like a stuffed old bear. He looks like a raccoon. <laughs> he yeah. does look a little like a raccoon. He has kind of like a thing around his eyes. Piglet seems to be wearing the highest pants I've ever <laughs> seen. That would be like, you know when you've seen like an old guy who's hiked his pants up to like his chest? Yeah. That's what Piglet's wearing. He does actually look a little more like that stuffed Piglet as well. That's true. You're right. <laughs> um, Like, yeah, the illustrations are very different. They're like, I feel like they're pretty like 60s, 70s, but yeah. also they have this like look in the background, almost like they're kind of drawn by children. Oh, interesting. Actually, do you want me to show you? I can show you a clip. Yes, please do. I feel like we can probably put the sound from this in the episode. I don't think Sayu's yeah, film is going to come after us. I think we're we're, <laughs> we're not worried about Disney. I'd be worried about, about but not Soviet copyright strikes. <laughs>
sign says exceedingly tall oak tree. <laughs> All right. So it's the one it's the one after that with like the bees where Pooh has to go and try and get up in the tree uh, get the honey. Yes. Do I look like a black cloud piglet? Yeah. Not very much. <laughs> So that song he's singing also is about how he's got to scratch his head and it's full of sawdust. Yeah, and he really, can't lose and he weight. Can't lose weight. <laughs> it's really cute. I really like the little like <laughs> It does sound like a song a kid would make up while like walking around. Oh yeah. Um. So um, they make three of these um, in 1969, 71, and 72. So like the exact same time Disney is making theirs actually. Oh, interesting. Um. Does Disney not go after them, or does Disney just think, like, eh, it's not my problem? I think that maybe, like, how are they going to go after the Soviet Union? <laughs> <laughs> like, Disney versus the Soviets? That would be an incredible court case, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we'll get to a court case in a second. Yes! It's not against the Soviets, though. <laughs> um, but despite being very different, um, Winnie the Pooh is also wildly popular in the Soviet Union. Um, the third film especially is pretty, like, ubiquitous. It gets, like, quoted a lot in, like, Eastern European popular culture. Um, okay, this is just cute. Um, my boyfriend often calls my cats Sloan and Potami. And I was like, "What? what's a Sloan and Potam? And he's like, you know, like a heffalump. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were, like, being heavy and walking on us. <laughs> like, oh my god, there's a translation for, for a heffalump? heffalump? Yeah. <laughs> It's like a combination of the word for elephant and hippo. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's just a little diversion. Um, so we'll go back to the West now. Um, <laughs> no, but it's always fun to take a little trip into, like, Soviet <laughs> filmmaking. Yes. <laughs> for, for me, anyway. <laughs> I mean, we watched, what was it, Ivan Vasilovich? Yes. As part of, like, a student group thing in university? Yeah, I was actually, I was trying to see if the guy who voiced Winnie the Pooh was actually a pretty famous actor, and I was curious if he had been in that film, because I was like, I know Sabrina's seen one other Russian film. <laughs> I've he seen was, one he Russian was, film, and it's Ivan Vasilovich. He was not. He was in Mimino, if anyone's seen that, also a famous Russian film. Ivan Vasilovich is fun, because a guy travels back in time to be Ivan the Terrible. <laughs> it's a great film. I really love it. <laughs> Anyway, if, if I had another podcast, it would be about Soviet comedies. <laughs> <laughs> the market in Winnipeg is great this for that. Is, this is the problem. I don't know if anyone wants to listen to that. <laughs> um. Anyway, so um. Yeah, we'll we'll leave anyway. we'll leave the the um Eastern Europeans to their business for now. Um, for now. For now. We're watching them. <laughs> We're watching their poo. Okay, so Steven Schlesinger, back to him. Uh, <laughs> we're watching their we're poo, watching their poo. <laughs> you know we're an award-winning podcast and yet poo jokes listen it's in it's unavoidable in this episode um so schlesinger is often left out of kind of like retellings of the winnie the pooh story i had this one book that was like all about like you know how it got into animation yep. all this and no mention of him and i'm like that's so strange but i'm pretty sure it is because schlesinger's estate has like long running beef with disney oh does it yes um so in 1991 schlesinger's widow and their daughter sue disney for failing to pay out all the royalties that they're supposed to get oh so whether or not there's actually merit to that i don't totally know according to disney they've paid them like 82 million dollars or something which is a lot of money it's so much money but, but also who has how much make... money has winnie the pooh made so much like billions i'm yeah. sure right 
so um this is kind of going through the courts and in 1994 disney's security office gets an anonymous tip that there have been thefts of winnie the pooh related documents but they're unable to substantiate this they've got this tip but they're like we like we don't know someone smuggled out winnie the pooh documents yes (laughs) um years later in court Schlesinger's widow is forced under cross-examination to reveal the name of a private investigator that she had hired on this case. And apparently, knowing who this guy is leads to, like, a flood of information. Oh. I don't totally know, like, what that investigation looked like. But somehow, by finding this guy, they find out that this unlicensed, by the way, private investigator... (laughs) Um had obtained a huge amount of confidential Winnie the Pooh documents. So he claimed that he had found the documents in a trash bin behind a Disney building in, I believe, Burbank, California. Okay. Um, Disney says, hey, none of our lawyers working on that case are working in Burbank, California in that building. So you're lying. And the judge does not believe him. So, like, the Schlesingers are in huge trouble because they've apparently been committing, like, corporate espionage. (laughs) (laughs) Just, like, sending this random guy with no PI license. How do you find an unlicensed PI? I don't know. Like, is it that hard to get a PI license? Was it just a man they hired? A family friend they gave Um, 20 bucks to? (laughs) But, okay, so that sounds like it's just, like, a crazy excuse to have stolen stuff, right? Yeah. But then, in 2001, Disney is sanctioned for having destroyed 40 boxes of Winnie the Pooh papers. So they have been destroying and throwing out Winnie the Pooh papers. So they probably were in a trash can somewhere. I, maybe. I don't know. Um, Disney claimed that the destruction of those was unintentional. 40 boxes is too much to be unintentional. Right? <laughs> Unless you're like, let's set this room on fire just for fun. How many is acceptable to be an unintentional thing? Like two? Yeah, maybe. Hey, like, oh, there were like two random boxes on the floor I threw out. Whoops. Whoops, I spilled a whole pot of coffee on a box. 40 is an, an afternoon of moving stuff. <laughs> or, like, putting it through the shredder. I think probably more than an afternoon for shredding, unless you've got, like, I guess yeah, they probably true. have a big industrial shredder. Yeah. But, yeah, um, that's too many to be But, yeah, they're sanctioned. I think they have to pay something like $90,000 in court is costs it like or something. Is it, like, the estate that they have to pay out to? Yeah. Because I'm, like, otherwise, I don't know if you, like, company destroys documents. They have to pay it out to, yeah, to Schlesinger's yeah, okay. estate. Um, there's this weird thing in 2003 where Milne's granddaughter attempts to reclaim merchandising rights, um, with the support of Disney. Like, Disney is backing her with the idea that she'll get merchandising rights back and then give them to Disney. That's not how that's going to work at all. No, it doesn't actually work that way at all. And the judge is like, what? No, (laughs) (laughs) you can't just be a granddaughter and say this is your thing. (laughs) Um... But in 2004, the lawsuit is dismissed, not on its merits, but because of the whole stealing private documents thing. (laughs) Um, And in 2009, all of the Schlesinger estate's um, claims are dismissed. So everything is owned by Disney, except for the books, which are now now in the the public domain, (laughs) which is why we're getting stuff like Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I thought maybe we could end by just like going back to Winnipeg and talking about where Winnie the Pooh appears in Winnipeg. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so um, first of all, at the Assiniboine Park Pavilion. Right, yes. Um, there's that like permanent Winnie the Pooh gallery. I think it's on the second floor. Yeah. Um, which has like objects and archival stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we found some like Harry Colborn stuff at the archives as well. Yes, we did. 
his diaries are like scanned there so you can't yeah. go read about all of his trips and the t- all of the times he got sick yeah i mean i feel like he's not writing like in a super like thrilling way <laughs> sort of just like went to zoo yeah i mean it's like a guy in a hospital it's a guy's journal right yes. it's a lot of it is like saw todd well, even, like, his note for buying a bear is so short. Yeah. It says, like, bought bear for $20. <laughs> and that's the entire entry. Not like, wow, I can't believe I bought a bear. Because I feel like I used to journal when I was a teenager. Yeah. I think I'd probably been like, I saw a weird old guy with a bear. Yeah. <laughs> no. And I bought it for 20 There would have been, like, some details. Yeah. No, it's more of just sort of a, like, oh, this is what I did on this day. Anyway. Um, so there's that, there's the stuff at the pavilion, um, at McNally Robinson, the, like, kids area has been Winnie the Pooh themed as long as I can remember. Yeah, right. When I was a kid, you used to, like, when you went and sat down, if you were a kid, um, you'd get, like, a little Winnie the Pooh coloring sheet. Oh. And you could get, like, a Winnie the Pooh cookie and a glass of milk with your, like, kids Cute. thing, with, like, the kids menu or whatever. I don't know if they, I don't think they do that anymore. I haven't tried to order from the kids menu. I should go there and try to order from the kids menu <laughs> and demand my Winnie the Pooh shaped cookie. Um, and then the last one I could think of was the Winnie the Bear statue. Right, yes. At a Cinnamon Park Zoo. Um, and that one, of course, features not, not Winnie the Pooh, but Winnie the, the bear. bear. And Colburn's shaking her hand, right? Is that the yeah, statue? Yeah, yeah. it's like him just, like, holding both the hands well, of this Well, it's based on a bear. picture that, right. of them on, like, at, I think, probably Valcarche, where they're, yeah. like, posing for a photo. It's yeah. either there or at Salisbury Plain. Yeah, so that's, that's all I've got. Um, this was, like, a nice little, nice chill episode. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to talk about something uh, everyone knows and loves. Yeah. But wait, you haven't talked about the movie about Harry Colburn. Oh, Bear Named Winnie? <laughs> yeah, starring it... Michael Fassbender wait, I'm as sorry. Harry Colburn. I didn't realize Michael Fassbender was in yes. it. Should we watch that for the bonus episode? <laughs> we should. Okay. <laughs> and Stephen Fry as Prothero. The movie was filmed Prothero. in Winnipeg. Yes, it was. In and uh, partially at Birdsill Provincial Park. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, we'll watch that and we'll talk about it. Yeah. So yeah, there is a whole movie about the real bear also, so yep. wants to watch it. Cool. And so, so many books yes. about... So many. There are like people who have made careers out of talking about Winnie the Milne Pooh and Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. There's a little less about the real bear, I think, on account of like it being a bear. Yeah. <laughs> There's only so much you can say about a bear. It was a tame bear that saw children. There are a couple of, like, philosophy books based on Winnie the Pooh. No, what? Yeah, there's, like, The Tao of Pooh. And, like, the tea of Piglet. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and I find we know, like, a little bit about Colburn. Mm-hmm. And that, like, we have his military records. His uh, children have written some stuff about his military career and his life afterwards. But obviously so much of Colburn's life is wrapped up in, like, he's the guy that had Winnie the Bear. Yes. But, yeah, he was in Winnipeg for, like, a long time. His, I don't think the building he, like, ran his clinic out of is still there anymore. But it was 600 Corridon Street, so it's... Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I'll have to go and, like, take a little look and see what's there. Go for a putter and see if it's still kicking around. But, yeah, that is uh, our little Winnie the Pooh episode. If you want to learn more about World War I, Winnipeg's Great War is a really great book. It's, like, incredibly readable. Jim Blanchard's a really popular writer. Yeah. So it's a good thing to check out if you want to know more about Winnipeg during the war specifically. That's neither of our, like, areas of expertise. No, for sure. We know a lot more about the home front during World War I, which you will learn in our next two episodes. Yes. (laughs) Um, yeah, so in the next episodes, you can expect to hear uh, about labor and the strike and... Uh, everything Colburn missed while he was overseas. Yeah. Because Winnipeg changed so, so much in, like, that span of four years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when you're listening to the next episode, just imagine, like, people were overseas for a lot of that, and they came home 
missing everything that we talk about in the yeah. next most of the next two episodes. That's a really good point. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you to the Manitoba Historical Society, the um, Winnipeg Foundation in their Centennial Institute grant in uh, the province of Manitoba's Heritage Grant for their support of the project. Thank you to our patrons as well. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash one great history. We do fun bonus episodes. Where we talk about uh, stuff we left out of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, maybe movies. Yeah. <laughs> Winnie the Bear. Watch a movie about a bear. Yeah. And then, yeah, all kinds of other fun stuff, whatever we get to share. Um, if you want to check out pictures of the episode, you can check that out at uh, onegreathistory.wordpress.com. We'll be sharing pictures of the real bear. There's lots of cute photos. I think we'll have a lot of really good photos for this There's one. There's so many cute photos of Winnie when she's little. Yeah. And the thing is, baby bears are so cute. <laughs> a lot of cute photos of Christopher Robin as well with his little stuffed bear. And his horrible root piglet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll post that for sure. <laughs> And you can follow us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at One Great History and Twitter at the number One Great History. Thank you so much for listening. You live, you learn. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very scary 20 minutes, though, between being like, well, they're not in the office. Yeah. Did they fall behind something or have I lost them? Did someone <laughs> take How them? How did you find them in there? Um, I realized I had taken the craft bin to the car, oh, and I was okay. like, I wonder if I put them in the bin, right. and yeah. then just, like, I was like, I should probably check the fishbowl, because I know I'm an <laughs> idiot, and I was right. Okay, we're rolling. Hey, all right. <laughs> and all that's going in the episode. Oh, good. <laughs> it's not the most embarrassing story I could have told. <laughs> I've had worse incidents, for sure. Okay, are we ready? Yes. Yep. All right.